Hello everyone, today is April 4th, and if it's Sunday, then this is the Delve. Back in November of last year, Joseph R. Biden was elected the 46th president of the United States. I know, the 2020 election seems like eons ago. It was an election unlike anything we've ever seen before. A nation of nearly 330 million people had to figure out a way to vote during a deadly pandemic. Somehow, we saw record voter turnout. More Americans voted in 2020 than ever before. For the first time in 24 years, a Democratic presidential candidate won the state of Arizona. The state also went blue in the Senate race, delivering a victory to former astronaut Mark Kelly, unseating Republican incumbent Senator Martha McSally. But what happened? How did the state go 24 years straight Republican? and switch over to the Dems. Well, it turns out that in recent years, the state has seen large changes in their demographics, which allowed the state to trend naturally towards Democrats. Let's start with the Latinx voters. There has been a 350% increase in the Spanish-speaking population in the past 20 years. From just 365,000 people in 2000 to 1.3 million Latino voters in 2020. This represents 24% of eligible Arizona voters. According to a New York Times analysis, Biden's narrow win in Arizona was due in part to a 25% increase in the Native American vote from 41,000 in 2016 to 55,000 in 2020. And this was predominantly in the Navajo and Hopi nations, but also in the Tahuna Otto nation, whose land has been cut and sacred sites destroyed by the border wall. One of the groups at the forefront of this blue wave was Mission for Arizona. Mission for Arizona is a grassroots organization that focuses on electing Democrats up and down the ballot. While communicating to voters in both English and Spanish, Mission for Arizona created an unprecedented voter engagement effort that also involved Native communities. They proved capable of not only electing a Democratic senator, but also a Democratic president. Today I speak with one of their organizers, Lily Greenberg Call. She walks me through their gargantuan task of turning Arizona blue. Hello, everyone. Today we have Lily Greenberg from Mission Arizona, and I'm so excited for this conversation. Lily, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I was telling you a little bit before we started recording that there's this construction happening. So listeners, I apologize in advance if there is a jackhammer happening right now. But Lily, actually, why don't you go and tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization? As you just said, my name is Lily Greenberg-Call. I actually currently am not an employee of the Arizona Democratic Party anymore, but I was for the last 
year, for most of 2020, I was an organizer with the state's coordinated campaign, which was called Mission for Arizona. I joined the team in January of 2020 when uh, we did not have a presidential nominee yet. I had actually been working for um, Kamala Harris's primary campaign in Iowa. And then when she left the race, uh, I came to Arizona and joined what was then really the state party. And the great thing about a coordinated campaign is, you know, you work, it's the state party working with Democrats up and down the ballot. So from the local level, all the way up to the presidential nominee. Um, and we're working with the DNC. So I was an organizer. Um, I worked mostly in the Tucson area, kind of the legislative district three, which is downtown and the, the west side of town. And I had the U of A campus in what was my turf. So I did a lot of work with young people, worked with students at the U of A and ASU and NAU, laid the foundation for a campus organizing program across the state to try and engage young people in what was for some of them their very first election. So when you were starting out in January 2020, I guess even the party on the local side, did you guys have an idea of how important Arizona was going to be in this election? Yeah, definitely. There had been a lot of chatter. I mean, even when I was in Iowa and, you know, when, especially as a candidate drops out, right, everyone who works for that person is, is kind of, well, heartbroken, figuring out their next steps. But a lot of people were saying, you know, Arizona is going to be it's a Senate race. We have to control the Senate if we want to get anything done, you know, and we might be able to flip the state. And, you know, we saw in 2018, Kirsten Sinema won. So that was a big wake up call. I know after 2016, you know, it was very close, the election in Arizona, at least for Hillary. And then Cinema's election was also close, but 2016 was a real wake up call, I think, for the party as a whole from a national standpoint of how little investment there had been in Arizona and how that was a mistake. Considering how close the results actually were, I think they realized that writing off the state had been a mistake. And so, yes, even, you know, even in 2019, there was a huge fundraising effort from Mark Kelly. And then when I first joined in January 2020, like we knew this was going to be a battleground state and it wasn't going to be easy, but that we could do it. And so that was really exciting too. You know, it was, it wasn't an impossible goal. It was going to be hard, but it wasn't impossible. I want to kind of get into the strategy of, yeah. of, the, of turning up the boat for this election. Can you walk us a little bit into what was the game plan? What were the ideas and, and the strategies that were going on? I think the strategy had to change and evolve a lot, right? As 2020 happened and, and as everything changed. I know the big effort in the very, in the beginning and when I first joined was actually getting people registered to vote. Um, and there was this sense that there, there was momentum um, for a blue presidency for Mark Kelly, both from the registered Democrats, but also from independents and some Republicans. And we knew that we could do that in part because of the attacks by Donald Trump on McCain. So we knew we could, you know, we had the momentum, but one, we were going to be going up against a huge machine of Republican funding because they yeah. knew the state was in jeopardy. And there was just so many people that we knew lived in the state who would be Democratic voters who just weren't registered. Uh, a lot of young people, like I mentioned, you know, Arizona has a very young population. Like, yes, there's a lot of retirees, but it's one of the fastest growing 
states. There's three large universities. You know, there's a lot of young people who live in the state. Uh, a lot of people who are indigenous who may not be, might not have voted a lot in the past. So we knew if we're going to push ourselves over the edge in terms of the numbers, we have to register people to vote. The problem was that works great in a pre-pandemic world when you can you know, go, go into the world and find people who aren't registered to vote. It doesn't work as well virtually because it's as you know, democratic uh, electoral politics, our infrastructure, our voter contact is based on people who are already registered to vote. Those are the people that we have in our system. Um, who we can who we can reach out to all those texts and calls that I'm sure everyone listening got. Well, it depends where you live. If you live in a swing state, I'm very sorry for what <laughs> you're, you, you're like, going to get a you're going to get a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, voicemails and texts that you got over the last year, but you know that that's because you're registered to, to vote. If you're not, right. we don't have your information. It's possible to get people's information, but it's not easy, and it's not. I would just say. It's much harder for us. So we really had to pivot to, I would say, in some ways, letting go of the original plan that like we were going to be able to register the amount of new voters that we needed and really focus on relentless voter contact, like I said, of existing voters to make sure that no one fell through the cracks and really relational organizing and using people's networks to find those new voters, you know, to make sure that everyone knew that their friends and their family, everyone was registered, everyone was signed up to get their ballot in the mail. Um, right. That was a huge focus as well, was really pushing. So Arizona has a, a early voting list called the, the PEVL, the Permanent Early Voting List. And it's a great, it's a really wonderful thing in the state. You can sign up for it as long as you're a registered voter. Once you're on the list, you get your ballot in the mail for every election in the future, local elections, midterms, whatever, you just fill it out at home and you send it back. And that was our main focus was making sure that, okay, once we had to be completely virtual, how could we keep registering new people by using the folks that we already had in our volunteer network and on our voter contact list to get their friends and family registered, but also making sure that everyone was on this pebble list so that they would get their ballots in the mail because we knew that the likelihood that they would actually send them back, especially with COVID and the uncertainties of voting in person, would be a lot higher if they were signed up to get their ballots in the mail. Right. And, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that I'm sure not just Arizona, but every kind of campaign across the country had to do different. Right. And one yeah. of those being mail ballots. And what were some of the other, I guess, different strategies that you guys, you know, employed this time around? So what we had to do is kind of take this model of how folks typically engage with the campaign, which is like going to a campaign office, you know, going to a phone bank there, picking up a canvas packet and going and knocking doors with their neighbors or in their community, hosting events at people's houses where you talk about the candidates, maybe, you know, candidate town halls, all of those things, we had to put them online. In some ways, I would say there were there were pros and cons to this because for some people, it, it made it more accessible, right? For a lot of younger people who are familiar with technology, have access to Wi-Fi and, and broadband and you know are techno technologically literate, it was great to get on Zoom. It was great to be like using TikTok and Instagram. It was easy for them. For a lot of older folks, it was very, very challenging. Um, right. And for yeah. people who just might not have 
access to these things. They might not have Wi-Fi at home. They might have to go to a library to use a computer. I mean, there were a lot of people who didn't necessarily even have a laptop. And so that was one thing we, a lot of my coworkers and I um, would meet someone and they wanted to volunteer. They wanted to contribute. They had the time, but they didn't have the resources. So we, you know, had to get them a Chromebook from the office or do something to provide them with that resource, which is which is totally fine. It's just that that I don't think is something we were prepared for on a national level or even on a statewide level. And we really had to move our, our main way of contacting voters besides texting became these Zoom hubs is the best way to describe it. So it was, you know, I mean, it ended up being an incredibly like well-run, amazing operation. Um, and I am so like impressed with the people I worked with and the volunteers that I worked with who were spending, some of them, it was like essentially a full-time job for them spending hours and hours on Zoom. People who learned how to use like their computers for the first time for this, you know, I mean, it, the the effort that people put in was, was so commendable and so impressive and, and really a testament to, to how, to the stakes of this election. And I think how people, how much people knew that the state could go blue and wanted to be a part of that, but it was definitely not the original plan necessarily, I would say. I mean, and then you can now see the results of all of that dedication and hard work. You guys turned Arizona blue for the first time since the 90s. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And so we're now pivoting into this new era. It's kind of, it's, it's I, don't, I don't want to call it like a post-Trump era, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in this zone, right? where a lot of Republican state legislatures and, and representatives are saying like, whoa, wait a minute, this kind of got out of hand in 2020. Way too many folks are voting. There's way too much access. <laughs> we really need to reel this in. We, we just can't have these many people voting. Oh God, the democracy, it's so bad. Yeah, oh, this is really inconvenient. <laughs> We really, really, we got to do something about this. And we're, you know, we're seeing things like in Georgia, where the state legislature is cutting down early voting days. There's this one clause in their bill where you cannot hand out food or water to folks waiting in line. They're closing down polling stations. So that means, all right, so we're going to have fewer polling stations, which will probably translate into longer lines which means longer waits, but we can't hand out food and water to folks? Like, what? what is this? Is there anything like this happening in Arizona that you know of? Yes, yes. Oh, gosh, here we go. I, mean, I know, I wish, <laughs> I wish it wasn't the case. There have been 24 different voter suppression bills introduced in the Arizona State Legislature since January. 24? Um, 24. Yeah. And, and then this just goes to show too the importance oh, of local Yeah, I, I know. It's, and, and I mean, that's the thing is, right, we've talked about, we don't have a full sense of like the scope of this, right? You know, I've seen in the news, like, yes, people are talking about what's happening in Arizona and Georgia, maybe highlighting one or two of the bills, but like 24 is a lot. And some of them are, there's, they're doing a lot of different things. Um, they are restricting absentee voting. One bill would require extra ID papers to be like sent in or shown with a mail-in ballot. There's a lot of 
attention being focused on, on this pebble, the permanent early voting list. They are trying to do a purge of people from the permanent early voting list who anyone who hasn't voted in two consecutive election cycles. So say you voted in 2020 and then you don't vote in the midterms, which please do vote in the midterms. They are incredibly important, maybe more right, important right. than, than the <laughs> generals. But you know, say someone doesn't, they would get kicked off the early voting list and have to re-register, but they won't get told that they're kicked off. So That's they one might of the go- weird things Georgia does too. They yeah. they they do like these role purges. Yep. And I met a lot of folks in Arizona who had been purged from the permanent early voting list who I would talk to them, you know, and they say, I, I'm, I would say, I can see that you're not signed up for this. And they would say, I did that last time. I did that in 2016. I did that in 2018. They had been kicked off of it. I, I didn't necessarily know why, you know, but I will say the people that are disproportionately affected by this are young people who move maybe, um, are working people who move, are uh, typically black and brown. And so, you know, it's hard to pinpoint, right? Because no one is told that they're getting kicked off the voter roll because they have a Spanish last name. Mm. But when you see that happening to certain communities so often, even when we were doing the ballot cure process, post-election in those like seven days where if someone's signature is a little different from what they signed up or registered to vote with or for whatever reason their ballot isn't going to be counted we're able to find that out and go talk to people both democrats and republicans send um, volunteers to go talk to people and give them the instructions on how to call the county recorders and fix their ballots most of the people that i had to talk to were young people or were were black and brown and I just, I thought it was fascinating that these are the people whose votes are getting discounted for some slight d- problem, discrepancy. I mean, I, I like have no problem calling a spade a spade. And I think that these, these laws and these bills are reactionary and I think they're racist. And even, you know, in Arizona, I'm, I'm forgetting who this person's name was. And I think it was a state legislator who was talking about this whole idea of legitimate votes which we've heard across the country in this, yep. in the discussion of the election and like, and, and who won and who voted. That whole conversation, it only seems to come up when black and brown people vote. Right. So, or working people, typically black and brown though. And, and I just think it's fascinating that that's the only time we're concerned about whether we have voter fraud or whatnot. You know, right. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's so obvious to me at this point and it really, to me, it shows that there are so many people and typically conservatives and Republicans in this country who feel that only some people are allowed to exercise their civil rights and some aren't. And when the people who aren't do, they need to make it even harder the next time for them to vote. So I think in a way, these bills, they show that we, I mean, we know that we won, but they they do show that, especially in Georgia, Arizona, like that we did a good job, right? That local organizers, that local organizations, that local communities, and then in, you know, with the Democratic Party at the end, like we did a great job of turning out the vote, especially in these communities, so much so that they're terrified and they know that the only way that they're gonna win next time um, is making sure that those same people don't vote, which is completely undemocratic. And I think people can't see that at this point, 
you know, the writing is on the wall. It's very clear. Right. It, it almost makes me wonder, can you imagine if, if Republicans had the same amount of energy trying to prevent folks from getting guns as they try to prevent folks from voting? We'd probably have far less mass shootings. Or, or you know, think like what happened in Atlanta. This yeah. Week. I mean, just domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are proper places where this energy could could go. Right. There are there are bad things happening. Like truly scarily bad things happening. Voter fraud, <laughs> Persian voter rolls. That's yeah. That's not one of them. We're not even at the point where every American is voting. Right. Right. So I think that's fascinating. You know, we're not even at that point, and. It blows my mind. It's so hard to try and make sense of it because I think there is no real logical answer except for right. like blatant racism. Right. What type of party do you have to be that you're just so bankrupt on ideas and any type of appealing policy that the only way you can win is to limit the amount of people who can vote? Gosh, it's really weird. Why don't you just come up with better ideas? It's just like, you know, some things can benefit from, like, conservative point of view. Why don't you, like, figure out what those things are and run on that and make that be, you know, your campaign issue? Well, I actually I have a question for you. What was, what was like, the last great uh, Republican policy issue? And you're like, yeah, you know what? That's actually, that's a good one. Probably... Mitt Romney's creation of the <laughs> Affordable Care Act in Massachusetts. Maybe that was like the last. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. It's, you know, at the end of the day, right, who is the party that is fighting for universal health care and health care mm. access? And it's it's not his. Right. It could be. You know, that, that was one of the things that was so interesting to me about this kind of working on the ground, this cycle. Um, and I'm sure you've experienced this being involved in activism and, and organizing like you will find the people on the coast of the country, I, I will say, we do not care as much about what happens to people in the middle as we should. And and then that's that's true, and it's, it's so sad. It's Yeah, and it's completely fair. And these are communities that have been left behind. Yep. I thought it was fascinating that I could talk to folks that I would have thought maybe I had nothing in common with, coming from the Bay Area, you know, I'm very Jewish and very progressive and coming from a very diverse community my whole life, you know, meeting people who are from a very small town who've never left, right? Grew up in a very different, everything's very different. We had a lot of the same ideas about how to fix this country. They also like universal healthcare. You know, they, one, there's Democrats everywhere, but even folks who might not identify strongly as a Democrat, we agree about a lot of basic things that need to happen to to fix the problems because everyone has realized that when they get sick, especially if, you know, say they're a farmer and they get sick from the pesticide usage that they've been using and their neighbors have been using, right. find a lot in, in a state like Iowa, you know, they need to, you need to go to the hospital and you need to know that you're going to have care and you don't want to have to worry about paying for that. Everyone can agree on that at this point, you know, and, and to me, it's just so... I mean, I don't even like have the words to explain why the Republicans keep fighting against these basic human rights that most Americans 
agree about, regardless of where they stand on party lines. We'll be right back. Registering voters is hard work. The Democratic Voter Project is now selling shirts where you can register a new voter by scanning a QR code directly on the shirt. With this shirt, you can now register a voter anytime, anywhere. But that's not all. With every t-shirt purchased, you plant five trees. Purchase a shirt now at demvp.org shirt. I think you bring up a really interesting point. It, it's, it's really, really fascinating. I'm from Pittsburgh, lived a bit in New York, and so definitely like a city boy <laughs> through and through, East Coast guy. And you can go around the country and you can find like those points that you really connect with folks. And, and you're like, how do we have this in common? We are geographically so different. Um, but that's one of the really, really fascinating things about America is that we are kind of all striving for the same thing. We have kind of different ideas of how to get there, or, you know, what's the best you know, way. But we all want our country to be better. And when you speak to voters, they want that. But somehow that gets lost between, I guess, like primary elections and then general elections. That gets distorted. And then when Republicans win, you know, by like 50%, 51%, they listen to the loudest, most ridiculous segment of their voter base, and which is, you know, might be 20%. And then they ignore 80% of like, you know, their constituents. What is that? And then I feel like sometimes when Democrats win, they're like overly accommodating. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, I, I get it. We want like comedy and all this stuff, but goodness gracious, the the way I feel like Democrats used to um, be overly accommodating. I think like now we're seeing like a bit of a change uh, in Congress, which is welcome. Well, right. I mean, what's the point of, I think it got, Gillibrand or someone said, you know, if we're not going to help people, we should, go the F home. Like, what's the point? <laughs> I love that. That's actually what's amazing. <laughs> we're not going to actually change. And the mm. thing is that even there are a lot of people, Democrats included, who who do benefit from the status quo remaining how it is, who aren't super motivated to change. And I think, you know, like you're kind of saying that 80% versus 20%, you know, most people in this country who have power and and the voice to talk about things and even then to be represented or to be elected as representatives are more in the the 20 percent bracket of people of, of economic standing and and so i think there there hasn't always been a motivation even from democrats to to change the status quo and we we tend to be accommodating i think we tend to think that people will work with us that we can work across the aisle and we should right in theory like we should right that. It's it's like yes, this this should be the way. <laughs> we should have a have us a government that functions well. Huh? Yeah. We can work together, but unfortunately, it hasn't been like that for a while. And I think there are certain things, you know, like I was saying, these basic human rights that we are not giving people in this country that 
folks deserve and they they realize that they deserve that now and they've elected people to go do that for them and so if we're not going to do that then we're not living up to the promises that we told people you know or as Gillibrand like, said we should go home exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly your job you know that's the thing is your job when you're an, a representative is to do tough things is to pass legislation is sometimes to you know learn how to communicate something to your constituents or to your colleagues that you think is going to be a hot button issue maybe or you know that people might think they don't like based on you know i don't know maybe years of like anti-socialist anti-communist rhetoric in this country saying that anything government regulated is terrible and, and we're going to turn into like communist Russia, you know, so people see socialist healthcare and they freak out. Like it's your job as an official and a, and a person in government to communicate the research and like the actual, you know, how is this going to make your life better to your constituents, even if that's difficult. And I think we don't always want to do that because it's hard and sometimes you lose elections, but you have to be willing to lose elections if you're going, you have to take a risk. Right. Uh, if you're going to actually change anything, you know, and anything risky, you're, yeah, you're, you're risking your job because your job is conditional on serving people, you know, mm -hmm. if you're not doing it, like, and you're not doing it well, and you're not making an effort to communicate to the people who elected you. No, they're, they might not vote for you again, but that's a risk you have to be willing to take when you sign up to represent people. This is actually dovetailing really, really nicely with my next question. <laughs> with uh, Senator Kirsten Cinema, I'm not seeing a lot of risk-taking. No. Uh -oh. She's really against increasing this minimum wage thing, anti-tweaking the filibuster. What What's happening here? Maybe we thought this, but I, I think even like Senator Sinema herself never said she was a progressive necessarily. Um, so uh -huh. I think, I think <laughs> so. Maybe she's like, I never said that. <laughs> right. Yeah. This this is something that I found. I mean, again, kind of going back to Arizona is not an, an easy place to win statewide elections as a Democrat. Right. This year, I mean, she was one of the first people to do it in a very long time, and this year we you know, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris won, Mark Kelly won, but we we actually like, we did not flip the state legislature democratic, even though we tried. We did not win as, as many seats in general in the local level, you know, in, in places that were more like swing precincts or swing counties. So it's definitely, I think part of it is, and I found this a lot of more progressive Democrats in Arizona were very disappointed with cinema, um, rightfully so, you know, and, and for even before the minimum wage vote, they were disappointed in her votes on a lot of different issues. I do think that someone as progressive as you know other members of Congress like might not be actually representing the state of Arizona in a full way, and because it is still you know it's Arizona is not New York and it's not California like it is a different place politically. And so you know on one side it's like yes I I do think. You have to represent your constituents. The other side of it, though, is, you know, Mark Kelly did not vote against the minimum wage raise. And I think he is still representing the state of Arizona. I think there are some issues, especially with 
with this where um, again, if you look at the polling across the country and across the state, there is support for an increased minimum wage. Um, and the fact of the matter too is that like the number itself, which we fight over all the time, you know, I'm sure you know this, if it was even that number is from the from 2012 really when there started to be this this big movement for the fight for 15. And so if it was adjusted for inflation, like this would be $24 an hour right, now. Right. And I, someone who is a senator making six figures a year, you know, living a very different life than a lot of their constituents in the state of Arizona is not equipped to say to their constituents, no, you know, you do not just like, you're fine on $7 and 25 cents an hour that's fine for you. Like, I, <laughs> I think that's a livable wage because it's just objectively not. Um, and I don't know, I wish I could like unpack what's going on in cinema's brain a little more. You know, I know that she thinks that like, I mean, I, I, there's always like politics and things and maybe she thinks that we should do this in a separate bill, yada, yada. But considering the, the state of really like emergency that we're in as a country economically um, right. with this pandemic and so many issues that the pandemic really, again, just like was a boiling point for like, I mean, we, we have needed a higher minimum wage in this country for a long time now, like considering all of that, we don't necessarily have time for lots of different bills. You know, we need to use the power that we have right now, this political power from having all three branches of, of government or well i guess three i'm thinking of the house and the senate as two separate branches yeah <laughs> they feel like it sometimes but you know having congress and, and having the executive power we need to use that and we need to again make people's lives better because this is the thing and and people will say democrats have a, they can't message well we have the good policies but we have a hard time communicating that to voters especially when republicans are very good at tapping into emotions i think if we don't give people tangibly increased quality of life mm -hmm. over the next two years we will not do well in the midterms i think that's a thousand percent correct and i i think senator cinemas i think she's miscalculating this yeah, year so i'm wondering is she thinking oh if i take a more moderate approach i can gain republican voters because they're not going to vote for her no, no matter what, she could vote alongside the Republican caucus for everything. As long as she has a, the letter D after her name, they'll never vote for her. And the, the thing is, though, is that like there are Republicans and independents who will vote for cinema regardless because they like her. Because again, Thinks, they are you fine. think so? Like, really? Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I think, I mean, I, I know for a fact there are, are Republicans who voted for Mark Kelly. And right. I do know that there are some, there were some registered Republicans, you know, whether it was McCain and Cindy McCain's endorsement of Democrats or, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that Mark Kelly and Cinema are more moderate centrist. Mark Kelly himself used to be an independent Dems, you know, they, to, to win in Arizona on a statewide level, especially as a Democrat, you have to, you have to be someone who is going to say like, I'm more interested in representing the state However, I think like, I do think she's miscalculating because ultimately I don't think the future of Arizona politics is the Republican party. And I think she is miscalculating how important the votes of young 
working class people, young voters, BIPOC people, how, those people are the ones who sent her and Mark Kelly and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to their offices. Um, right. And I think those are the folks who are going to continue the Democrat and carry the Democratic Party, you know, and in Arizona, um, not just on a national level. And so I think, I think it's a grave miscalculation. I don't really know, you know, I wonder, I know there must be people telling her this. So I just, at this point, it's, it's personally frustrating and disappointing because I wonder, you know, is this maybe just her, her personal belief that this shouldn't, that we shouldn't raise it, you know, or is it a, a misguided political calculation? Is she not looking to the next few years? I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I wish I had like a better answer, but it's been so, it's really just felt like a, a stab in the back to so many people um, who voted for her and, you know, and, and even her and um, and Mark Kelly voting against, uh, which, which ended up being like pointless in the end, but the voting to not, um, not give pandemic benefits, I guess the stimulus checks to undocumented families or people, you know, they're, I just, there are so many people who spent hours working to elect both of those people who either are undocumented, who were on staff, or who their family members are, you know, volunteers and staffers and people from mixed status families and dreamers and people who literally put their heart and souls and mobilize their communities too, to go out and vote in a way that they might not have been willing to without that personal you know, involvement for these people and they sent them to the Senate. Um, and then to say, you know, on, uh, to me, it's, it's false too, because they do contribute. These are people who have, they might not have a social security number, but they have an individual tax number. They pay their taxes. They contribute to this country in so many ways and actually don't get a lot of benefits back compared to most people to say then that you don't deserve a lifeline in this pandemic. It's just very insulting. And I don't really think there's a ethical like reason for it. Right. I like to end these conversations with our guests telling our listeners how they can get involved and what they can do to help, you know, make some change. What advice would you give to our listeners? I would say the first is the fact that you're listening um, and that you're taking the time, however long it is, listening to a podcast about a very specific issue, that is, you know, keep doing that. Um, that's the first step. Make sure that you're registered, make sure that your information is always current and make sure that your friends and your families are registered and their information is current because that we have to break down the stigma of don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion, you know, that there's certain things that we avoid having conversations about, especially intergenerationally, maybe with our parents or older people in our life, um, or even like inter-community. There's no way that we're going to solve the problems that we face um, as a country, as a society, as a globe, if we don't talk about things like politics and we remove the stigma because there's nothing wrong with talking about politics. I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about religion either, but you know, there's, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Um, and we shouldn't be afraid to have these conversations about things that are personal and sometimes emotional and intense because they affect your life. You know, I think this myth that somehow politics operates in this separate sphere of existence where 
where you can choose to be involved or not, sure, you can choose to vote. But right. whether you choose to vote or not, what happens politically is going to impact your life. I do think more young people are realizing this, but we need to, we still have a lot of work to be done when in terms of making sure that like we can actually have conversations, especially about hard things like race in this country or things that people do not want to talk about because they make them uncomfortable. It's very hard to have these conversations. It's very hard to commit to being involved, not just when there's a presidential election, but this is another thing I would say is vote, actually vote in the midterms, vote in your local elections, make the effort because no one's going to do it for you of understanding what is happening in your community. A lot of times there's elections for positions that you don't know about that are super random. Like, I don't know, March, random day in March is the election for some local position. It has, it's not November. It's, you know, a random year. Like you're not going to know about it, unfortunately, because we don't, again, do a great job of educating people and making political involvement accessible. But you do like that information is there and getting involved, especially on the local level, and then kind of using that as a baseline to become more engaged nationally, I think is the best way to actually solve problems. Um, and you can do the most on a local level and that will have a ripple effect nationally. You know, the only reason Arizona turned blue is because for years before 2016 and especially after people in the state, not just like DNC operatives from DC, but people in the state said, wow, our communities are suffering from horrible xenophobic policies, from racism, um, you know, from disenfranchisement. How do we mobilize to elect people that look like us to sit in Phoenix and vote? How do we elect people who will have our best interests at heart in the Senate? And so that work was all done on a local level and honestly, we just like the, the Democratic Party on a national level was able to come in and really kind of just take that to the finish line. But we did not do that alone. And we did not do that just on a, on a because of all the fundraising capacity, you know, and whatnot. Like that was, this was local effort. And so that's the biggest thing I would say is like, figure out what is happening where you are and in your community and how you can get involved to make that. Wow. Lily, I... I can't thank you enough for this conversation, the way you were able to impact Arizona for us, and also just thank you for all of your, your work and your service to trying to make our union a little bit more perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'm just happy to, to be here and to, and you know, I'm grateful that there's people like you across the country. I think it's easy to get, well, especially now, there's a lot of bad things happening, but you know, mm. there are, I think it's easy to forget how many people there are like-minded people and you know people committed to to like you said making making this place a little more perfect so i'm grateful for your work as well thanks for coming on the delve thank you for tuning in this is the delve i'll see you next sunday